Well, let's look at Jonah chapter number four. This is, uh, this is a chapter of the Bible that uh, is comical in many respects. And part of the reason we know Jonah is true is because you would not write this chapter if this story was not true. Like if you were making up a story, you would have no desire or nothing in your brain would trigger to write this chapter. It's relatively strange, honestly. It's a chapter of Jonah that most people don't really know or consider all that often, but it has, I think, the biggest kind of punches in it, and the real point of the book is driven home in the closing chapter, Jonah chapter number four. So I want us to read chapter three, verse 10. Two weeks ago, we left off here in chapter three, verse 10, and then we're going to walk through the first four verses of Jonah four. Next week, we'll do the back half of the chapter and wrap up the book of Jonah. So chapter three, verse 10 says this, that the people of Nineveh, they repent and they turn to God. And it says that God sees their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. And I think, in my mind, now should come, like, the end, in all capital letters, or they lived happily ever after. That's how the story should end, right? It doesn't. Chapter 4, verse number 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. So we have to deal with, you know, this Igmo again. Here's Jonah yet again uh, running from God basically and being cantankerous and angry. And here's what Jonah says to the Lord. He prays and he said unto the Lord, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Those are strong words. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry. This, I read these words and I think, are you kidding me? This book should have just ended. And here we are having to deal with Jonah yet again. <clears throat> and we're going to see this week and next week, Jonah protesting God. And we're going to unearth a little bit more of Jonah's heart, and it's going to be extremely helpful because it's going to allow us to see our hearts and how we are oftentimes Jonah-esque. I'm thankful that Jonah chapter 4 is here because Jonah chapter 4 helps us to see who God is, yes, but it also helps us to see who Jonah is and who we are many times. And here's, if I could illustrate what's happening, here's what's happening in Jonah chapter 4. If you have a firewood pile at all at your house, or maybe your grandparents did, and you've ever picked firewood out of the pile to go be in the fireplace, you'll understand what I'm talking about, that you pick the wood off slowly but surely, and eventually you get down to the bottom of the pile where there's this row of logs that's on the ground. And as you begin to pick those off the ground, inevitably in any log pile, there are a few of them that have missed the tarp that's on the ground, and they actually have been on the ground for like three years. And it looks real good, and it looks real nice on, on top, and it looks like a perfect log that you'd want to burn in your fireplace, but you pick it up, and underneath it's all rotten and like squiggly, and there's, you know, beetles and spiders and stuff crawling all over that log. You just throw it back down, and you want nothing to do with that log that looks good on top, but when you look at it, it's just like, this is disgusting. This is what's happening with Jonah. God is picking up the last log here, and his name's Jonah, and he's going to turn him over, and you're going to see a lot of nasty, squiggly, ugly man inside. 
And this is meant really to show us how he does reflect on us and the issues that he struggles with are issues that we struggle with deeply. And, and this is so enlightening. It's actually refreshing to me in some respects because it's a man who's religious and, and does have a heart for the Lord and his word, but yet he still struggles with, with some deep issues. And we're going to begin to discover those here this morning and understand who exactly Jonah is. So I want you to see this religious man inevitably, but his heart is all messed up. And he's going to spend this chapter protesting God. So I want us just to start with Jonah's anger and look in verse number one of chapter four. The Bible says that Nineveh repents, they turn to God, they proclaim a fast, they put on sackcloth, and God decides to spare them and not judge them and not pour out his wrath on them. And the Bible says in verse uh, number one of chapter four that it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. This displeased exceedingly has the, the thought that Jonah thinks God is making a mistake. Jonah thinks that God is doing something he should not, that this is not the way this is supposed to go down, God. And it says that he is very angry because of this. And just think about the superlatives that are in there. It not just displeased him, displeased him exceedingly. He's not just angry, he's very angry. Like you could not make this man more seething. Jonah's blood is boiling, his jaw is clenched, his fist is tightened, and he's mad. He is ticked at God, and why? You know, what displeased Jonah so much? Well, what displeased Jonah is this isn't going how I thought it should go. This isn't unfolding how I wanted it to unfold. God, you just gave those people mercy and grace and long-suffering, and I don't think that they deserve it, God. I don't think that they should have that. I want you to pour your wrath out on them, God. Now, Jonah is so far removed from the heart of God, it's, it's almost comical. The Bible tells us that if one sinner turns to the Lord, Luke tells us this, if one sinner turns to the Lord, then there is rejoicing and there's jubilation in heaven. Think about this. Nineveh has at least, at least 120,000 people living in the city. They all just turned to the Lord. Can you imagine the celebration that's going on in heaven right now? Like, it's a party, but not in Jonah's heart. Jonah's mad. Jonah's seething. Jonah's ticked at God. Now, this issue that's Jonah's issue is not just Jonah's issue. You see this all through Scripture. You see people that struggle with anger. You see people that want to squash other demographics of people. James and John, disciples of Jesus, who are actually the sons of thunder, which sounds a little bit ominous, but that's what they are, the sons of thunder, we think of Peter being this fly-off-the-handle crazy person. James and John, actually, there's a, a story in Luke 9 that disciples go before Jesus into Samaria, and they proclaim Jesus coming, receive him, uh, be receptive, these sorts of things, and the people of Samaria won't do it. So Jesus gets there. They won't receive him. And this is what James and John tell Jesus to do to these Samaritan people that won't receive him. I'll read it for you verbatim, Luke 9. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Here's James and John. They say, Lord, they're not helping us, so you know what you should do? Rain down fire on their heads. Like extra crispy, just kill them. Like literally kill them. 
and let us do it. Give us the power to rain down fire on their heads. And Jesus looks at them and says, what? No. That's not me. That's, that's not my spirit. What are you doing? I didn't come to destroy these people. I came to save these people. I have compassion on these people. I love these people. But they had missed it. Their mindset was that of, of anger and frustration and hostility. Now, Jonah's issue, James John issue, is sometimes, in my experience, modern Christian issues. I've met some Christians that were, frankly, rabid. They were, like, ravenous, crazy, angry. I want to use anger as a tool and be hostile people. Sadly, I have, which is completely antithetical to Scripture. A Colossians 3 tells us that because we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we should put off anger and wrath and malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of our mouth. We should put that off. Galatians tells us that if we walk in the Spirit, we should have the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And I've met people that are angry, and not angry in the sense of like, I have an anger issue and I need the Lord to help me with it, but angry in the sense of like, I'm going to use the Bible to justify my anger. You know, I'm going to be all about holiness, and God's about holiness, the Bible's about holiness, I'm about holiness, but not in an angry way. If you're about holiness, then that would be attached to the fruit of the Spirit inevitably, and if you're attached to the fruit of the Spirit, then you wouldn't be ungentle in your critiques. If you have the fruit of the Spirit bearing fruit in your life, then you wouldn't be quick to frustration and anger. If that's there, there would be joy. There would be some long-suffering. There would be gentleness. But sometimes we can, we can miss that, and we can begin to be angry people. And, and I've even heard people say, well, I'm just, the Bible tells us, reprove, rebuke, which, first of all, contextually, that's for a pastor. Secondly, the Bible says to reprove and to rebuke and to exhort with what? Long-suffering and doctrine. It's not just squash them. It's not just lay the hammer down on their heads and be angry. But it is reprove, rebuke with some encouragement, with long-suffering, with doctrine included. Let me, let me bottom shelf for you what, what this means. It means that you can't use the Bible as an excuse for you to be angry and wrathful and salty with your relatives you can't use the Bible as an excuse for that. You can have that problem and understand it's a problem and admit it's a problem, but you can't justify yourself using Scripture. Well, Jesus, he overthrew the money changers temple. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm Captain Money Changer. I'm just going to overthrow them all. That's going to be my mode of operation all day long. I'm just going to go around. You can't do that. First of all, you're not Jesus. <laughs> Secondly, that's not you doing that. And your anger and trying to use the Bible to justify it is wrong. The, the Bible is very clear that you as a parent should have obedient children and children are to be obedient. That does not mean, though, that you get to squash them when they step out of line. And that you just get to be angry and you don't do it exactly how I tell you you're going to do it, then I'm going to... No, there's a difference there. There's a difference between obedient children and you using anger as a tool inside of your home. The Bible tells us very clearly that there are gender roles, that inside of the home there are roles and responsibilities, and the man is to lead the home. However, that does not mean 
that the man leads with an iron fist that I'm going to rule my roots and you better do what I say. That's not what the Bible says. And if we're not careful, we can misapply Scripture to justify ourselves so that now you just will do what I say. What happens? You start to escalate. You start to be angry. Your blood starts to boil. What inevitably happens after that? You start to, she just won't listen. The kids just won't listen. So now you start to use some physical force because you're bigger and stronger men. I don't mean that as a slight to you ladies. It's just biology. We're bigger and stronger. Hopefully you see that as a good thing. I haven't met many women that want to be 6'7", 275, but that's a good thing that you probably don't want to be. But you start to use that and your anger starts to escalate. Why? Well, because the Bible tells me I'm to rule. No, absolutely not. The Bible tells you that you are to be the leader of your home and that you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? Christ who had all power given unto him, Christ who could have called angels to f- set him free, but he gives himself, he sacrifices himself, he, he co- becomes obedient unto death, he humbles himself, he takes upon the form of a servant. Why? Because he lacked power? No, he had all power, but he did that out of love. That's scriptural. And if we're not careful, we become people, even young people in the room, start to use anger as a tool I'm about to go into the basketball court. I'm about to go into the football field. So I'm going to put on some music that's going to get me all worked up. It's going to get me all angry. So I can go out there and go hawk smash them on the football field. Plenty of young men have begun at an early age to begin to use anger as a tool to help them. And it's dangerous. Anger is always one letter away from danger. Anger is dangerous. Jonah is a man who's seething, who's angry, whose blood is boiling. By the way, that's for ladies as well. Men aren't the only ones that struggle with anger issues. Ladies do as well. But Jonah has the worst kind of anger you can have. Not at another human. He has anger at God. God, I think you are unfair. God, I think you are doing it the wrong way. God, I'm not pleased with what you're doing He's protesting the Lord himself. I don't think you're right. And this is Jonah's anger seething over. And I will at least give Jonah some credit because he does begin to, in verse number two, take his anger to the Lord and express it there. And Jonah ends with this kind of analysis. And I want us to see it in verse number two and three, what unfolds. Here's what Jonah says. Angry, ticked, madman. He prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? God, remember before all this started, I was over in Israel, you came to me, said go to Nineveh, and I told you this when I was there. Like before I run, before I get on the boat, before I get thrown off, before the fish, before out of the fish, before walking to Nineveh, before all, I told you this, God. This was my saying when I was back home in Israel, here's what I said. Therefore, I fled before into Tarshish. Here's why I ran. For I knew thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repentest thee of evil. Jonah, as a complaint, <laughs> lodges some of the best praise for God we've ever heard in Scripture. Jonah says, God, 
I knew it. I knew I'd get there, and you were going to be gracious, and you were going to be merciful, and you were going to be all slow to anger, and you were going to give great kindness to these people. Ah, that's Jonah. Like, I'm so ticked at you because you're this. You're gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And Jonah says, I knew this. Now, okay, how did Jonah know this? Did Jonah just have like a hunch that God was going to be this way? No, Jonah knew this because Jonah knew the Bible. Exodus tells us, and Jonah inevitably would have known this scripture, that the Lord passed by him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And that by will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, upon the third and fourth generation. What's that saying? It's saying early on, rooted in Scripture, is this establishment that God is merciful, God is gracious, God is slow to anger, God does forgive iniquity and forgive transgressions. Now attached to that is the end of that is saying that God doesn't just waive all the consequences of our sin. That sometimes those consequences come back to, to be reaped, even on our kids or even on our grandkids sometimes. But this is an establishment early in Scripture that God's merciful, God's gracious, God's slow to anger. Psalm says the Lord's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. Joel, shortly after the life of Jonah, writes about God and says, Look, rend your heart, not your garments, and what? Turn to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repent of him of the evil. So here's Jonah describing part of the attributes of God. This is important. To be able to have a window into what's God like? Well, Jonah's saying God is gracious. Literally, we have unmerited favor. Like we did not earn, we could not earn any credit with God, but yet there's still favor and he still gives good gifts to us. This is grace as God giving us what we do not deserve. And Jonah's saying, God, you are a gracious God. This is not just a New Testament truth. This is an Old Testament and a New Testament truth. Frankly, it's a truth before there even was any testaments because it's the nature and character of God. It's part of who he is, has always been, will always be. This is God saying, I'm gracious. This is, some people misconstrue the Old Testament to be strictly law, which it's not. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Moses is a man who finds grace in God's sight. God will always be himself. And graciousness is part of his character. It's part of who he is. He can no more hide his grace than the sun can hide its rays. It's who God is. And the great thing for us is when we compare the enormity of our sin, which we probably can't even fully ever comprehend how big that is, but even if we could, when we compare the enormity of our sin, where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. God is a gracious God. God is merciful. Grace, God giving us what we do deserve, don't deserve. Mercy, God sparing us from what we do deserve. I deserve the judgment. I deserve the discipline. I deserve the wrath. I deserve hell. And God not giving me that. God not giving you that. Jonah says, you're merciful. Mercy is an attribute of God and it compels him to be actively compassionate. 
to be actively compassionate, not just to Jonah, not just to Nineveh, not just to Samaritan people who won't receive him, but to you. And understand that this is not mercy and grace. It's not a temporary mood that God's in. Right? God did not wake up and he was happy one day and just decided to spare Nineveh because he was in a good mood that day. God is part of who he is, always. He's merciful. He's gracious. This is why the psalmist could say that his mercies are new, what, every morning. This morning, tomorrow morning, the next morning. You can bank on it. Why? Because God's merciful. He's slow to anger. If you are, if you're someone who is seeking the Lord and you're, you're just not sure what to make of all this, mercy and grace and, and forgiveness of my sins from Jesus. And inevitably in every service, we have people that are that way, that have not yet really been saved, not yet become a Christian. A fair question from you might be, if I recognize the gravity of my sin and I come to God and I tell him I'm wrong, forgive me, I'm sorry, I trust in you, how will God respond to me? What would his disposition be like towards me? What would I find God to be like? Can I tell you the answer in that is rooted in Scripture? Certainly, it's also rooted in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that if you had seen him, you'd seen the Father. The part of his mission, yes, to redeem us first and foremost, but part of his mission was to show us in the flesh, in living color, what God was like. And what is Jesus like? Here's what Tozer says Jesus is like when those that, for those that come to him. He says, we learn how God acts toward people. The hypocritical and basically insincere will find him cold and aloof as they once found Jesus. But the penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he's friendly. To the poor in spirit, he's forgiving. To the ignorant, he's considerate. To the weak, he's gentle. To the stranger, he's hospitable. What's that saying? It's saying that if you look at the life of Christ, Jesus is stern with people at times. And Jesus does overthrow some tables at times. But it's always with those that are hypocritical, always those that are guising religion for their own profit and for their own good. It's always with the insincere people. But people that come to Jesus with the right heart, repentant, he doesn't turn them away. A Samaritan woman at a well, people that James and John want to squash, all through the Gospels, you see people that come to Jesus that are poor and needy. You find a, a prostitute kneeling at his, at his feet and people saying, send her away. Get her out of here. But that's not Jesus. That's not God. He's merciful and gracious. And his approach, if you turn to him and you, and you run to him and you say, God, I'm wrong. Forgive me. I need you. His approach is mercy, grace, slow to anger of great kindness. This, the goodness of God is what compels him to be kind, benevolent, good-hearted towards us, although we don't deserve it. And since God is never changing, he's immutable, the intensity of his kindness does not waffle back and forth. 
God's kindness is as it was with Nineveh, as it was with Jonah, so it is with us. It's great kindness. There's no meter that's going back and forth on God's kindness. It is there continually. It is of great kindness. He's never been kinder than he is right now, nor will he ever be kinder. He's the same. And Jonah says, my analysis, God, is what I thought in the first place. God, I thought you would be gracious. I thought you would be merciful. I thought you would be slow to anger. God, I thought you would have great kindness. And I thought you would repent of the evil. I thought you'd change your mind. I thought you wouldn't kill these people. And that's why I did not want to go in the first place. So what do you learn from this man? Well, you learn clearly you can know God's word without knowing God's heart. Jonah is a man who knows God's word. He's able, I knew you were this way. Why? Because he knew scripture. He's a prophet. But he's so far detached from the heart of God and what God desires to happen, it's laughable. This is a man who has resigned himself that I will do what God declares, but he has not resigned himself to do what God desires. So there's a difference. Chapter one and chapter two were all about Jonah finally saying, God, I wave the white flag. I surrender. I'll be obedient. God, you say do this. I, I captain. I'll be begrudgingly, I'll do it, but I'll, I'll go do it. I'll fall in line. Chapters three and four are all about Jonah, who is obedient begrudgingly, but his heart's still messed up. And Jonah has not waved the white flag that I'll let God do what God wants to do. So there's a difference there. There's a difference between I'll do what God says, and I'll let God do what God wants. And many people, even Christians, have never resigned themselves to just allow God to be God, to allow God to do as he pleases. And this is, this is Jonah. God, I don't want you to give them mercy. I don't want you to give them grace. I would prefer if you judged them. I would prefer if you rained down fire on them. But God's character is not limited to Jonah's preferences. Nor, might I say, is God's character limited to your preferences. God's not boxed in by what you want. God's God. The God's grace and mercy and long-suffering and, and his slowness to anger, his kindness, it has no bounds. You can't box that in. There is no demographic of people that you say, God, I don't like them. I don't think that they should have the gospel. I don't think they should have your grace. There, there is no, hey, I would prefer if they didn't have this. There's none of that. This is why I love Missions Conference. Missions Conference is actually right around the corner. It's in four weeks. Missions Conference is a great way for us to zoom out our perspective and not just focus on us, not just even focus on our church and, and our little kingdom here, but to zoom out and to try our best to get the heart of God for the world. So it's an opportunity for us to engage Yes, in, in what we're doing, but also even in what we're giving to get the gospel to people that we'll never meet. Why? Because that's the heart of God. He wants those people to have the gospel. We just, uh, this morning, actually sent three guys to Vanuatu. We sent John George and Randy Edgar and Dave Pfeiffer over to Vanuatu for two weeks to help Seth build a house. Why? So that <clears throat> Seth and Nicole Stokes can minister to the Tiale people group for a decade or more and give them the gospel of Jesus. Why would we do that? Why? Because we want to understand the heart of God. We want to know that he's about getting people the gospel, giving them grace, giving them mercy. And Jonah 
wants God to be boxed in by his preferences. And God's not boxed in by that. Nor by yours. It doesn't matter if you like them or not. It doesn't matter if you think they're good moral people or not. It doesn't matter if you would prefer them to come to church or not. It doesn't matter if you like the color of their skin or not. I'm feeling froggy today, so I'll go there. You know white people are a minority in heaven? Like, for real. I'm going to be on the outskirts. Revelation tells us that every tongue and every kindred and every tribe will be around the throne praising. God's not boxed in by you or your preferences or what you like or don't like. God's God. We, and we need to be like Jonah and understand the heart of God. That God wants to reach all people. God wants to reach these Ninevites. These people that Jonah don't think, Jonah doesn't think they're deserving. But God does. God says, this is my nature. This is my character. I want to give them my mercy, my grace. I don't want to give them anger. Jonah had the right theology, but he had the wrong heart. He had, I know who God is, but he had no idea what God desired. And that's very possible. For you to have the right theology, for you to know Scripture, for you to be able to recite who God is and what he's like and even give the gospel to somebody else, but not have the heart of God. He wants it. Jonah wants it for himself, but he doesn't want it for other people. I'll take it for Israel, but I won't take it for them. I want this group of people to have it, but I want that group of people to have it. But Romans 5 tells us clearly that we are all, all of us, were enemies to God. And we were all reconciled to God. How? By the cross that we just sang about, that there it's where we find mercy and grace. All of us were in it. We're on the same page. Old, young, doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account or don't have in your bank account. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter what gender you are. Doesn't matter. We're on the same page. Enemies of God who are reconciled to God by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jonah neglects to see this. Jonah neglects to see that this is the heart of God, that I want to be merciful and gracious to these people. To Jonah, God was wrong. God was not fair. But God wasn't confined by his human rules and regulations. God didn't need Jonah's stamp of approval, nor does he need yours. And God was true to himself, despite Jonah not wanting him to be. God's true to himself. Let me give you a truth from this chapter that I think is profound. You ready? It's four words. You are not God. Let that sink in for a second, okay? Let that marinate up in there. You are not God. God is God. You know what that means? It means you don't have to control everything. Some of you I know, you're little control monsters. You got to control everything. Make sure you got a tab on everything. Make sure they're doing this. Make sure everybody's happy with everyone else. Make sure you got to control it all. You know how that ends? That ends in really, really deep anxiety or really, really deep anger. For Jonah, it's anger. It's either I'm going to try to control it all and realize that I can't control it all and I'm going to get real worked up and real anxious and I'm, I'm going to have deep anxiety in my life. Or I'm going to try to control it all and I'm going to think that I have got it all controlled. Then it's going to blow up in your face and you're going to get real mad because you thought it was controlled, but it's not. But if you would realize the simple truth that you're not God, 
You don't got to control everything. You don't have to be master of the universe or even master of your own universe. That would help you. You could kind of rest in that. You could go to bed with a few less things on your mind. If you just knew God's God, you know what? I surrender to his will, whatever he wants. I'm okay with that. Now, I will say conversely, it does not mean Paul addresses with the Thessalonians. That does not mean you do nothing. You just lay down, you never go to work, you never do anything. Paul told the Thessalonians that because they were thinking that way. You work as unto the Lord. You engage, but you're not God. You don't got to control everything that's going on around you or every person that's in your orbit. If you've ever had a boss that was a control freak, you know that this is true. They were probably really angry or probably really anxious. Why? Because you having to control everything, them having to control everything, inevitably ends in that way. Jonah ends in his temper, his anger. That I, I wanted this to go differently. And he tried to control the scenario. God, you want me to do that? I think I know how that's going to go. I'm going to run from you. I'm going to jump a ship. I'm going to go to Tarshish. And God has demonstrated over and over again, Jonah, you're not in control. I'm in control. Jonah, you're not in control. You want to try to kill yourself in the ocean? I'll just swallow you with a fish, buddy. He's, he's done over and over again. You're not in control of this, man. He's, he's even not done. Chapter 4 next week, we'll look at another one where Jonah thinks he's in control again. He's not. If you could just rest in the fact you're not God. You don't got to be in control. You got to manage it all. He's God. This whole chapter has already been comical, the first two verses. But it gets worse, verse number three. Jonah's analysis ends in this. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. They catch that. Jonah says, God, why don't you just kill me? I'm done. I just want to check out. Like, Jonah is so angry and so irrational at this point in time that he says, God, he's suicidal. God, why don't you just kill me? Like, I am trying to invoke divine euthanasia here. Would you just eliminate me and get me off this planet? And Jonah's analysis in the end is rooted back to his anger. It's rooted back to his assumption that he can control that what he thinks is fair should go. And it leads him to some drastic, almost life-altering decisions. That now I'm willing to give up my life because of this. Now thankfully, God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, and of great kindness, not just with Nineveh, but with Jonah. Not just with Nineveh and Jonah, but with you and me. The same God who's doing this with Nineveh is going to do it with Jonah. Again, he's already done it in chapter number two, where he is gracious and merciful, and he spares Jonah, and Jonah cries even in praise, I'll, I'll give what I vow to you, salvation is of the Lord. And now, yet again, Jonah's heart, you pick up the log, you look at it, and you're like, that man's disgusting, but God still merciful and gracious and slow to anger with Jonah. God does not just squash him and say, okay, fine, you're done. Out of here. Get out of the game. Nope. Here's, here's God's response. It's an ask. Here's what God says to Jonah. Then said the Lord, very short question, doest thou well to be angry? Here's God's whole cross-examination of Jonah. And it sounds like a, a funny response, but God often uses questions to rebuke his children. 
This is what God employed in the first rebuke of sin ever recorded in Scripture. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. What does God do? He asks some questions. It's a great tool. If you're parent, grandparent, and you're seeking to correct somebody, questions are a great tool. What does God say in Genesis 3? The Lord called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? Question 1. Who told thee thou was naked? Question two. Hast thou uh, eaten of the tree which I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Question three. What is this that thou hast done? God often uses that. In Job, God uses this. Chapter 38, God asked Job 24 questions, like a barrage, back to back to back to back. And Job is put in his place. And here's God employing a question. Jonah, doest thou well to be angry? Jonah, is this Okay. Like, is this all right? You can just be all angry and mad at me for this, for me being merciful and gracious to these people? Joe, you think, you think this is okay for you to do? And what he's saying really is, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry that I'm being merciful and gracious to people, but I've been merciful and gracious to you? Like, Jonah, you want this for yourself, but you don't want to share it with anybody else? You want this for your heart, but you don't want it for their heart? Jonah, you're okay to be angry with me? And here's God, still gracious, merciful, slow to anger, not killing Jonah, but drawing him in, reproving him, rebuking him, chastising him as he will with a child, and drawing him in to say, Jonah, I'm not done with you. Jonah, is this, is this okay? What do we take away from this? There's a ton but I take away from this, we've got to check our anger. Many of us have some deep-rooted anger issues that we, we fly off the handle. We're uncontrollable. And it always leads to some bad choices. I take away from this, yes, that I should surrender to God what, what wants me to do. But I should also surrender to what God wants to do. I'll just let him be God. I think away from this, I should rest. I should rest in the knowledge that God is God. I'm not. I don't have to be in control of everything. I take away from this that here's a man who, I don't know why you'd write this other than that it's true, that has some deep, deep heart issues, but I look at him and I see myself. Maybe you see yourself. A man who thinks God's not fair and wants to have it out with him and be mad at him. And God is gently, graciously, mercifully trying to say, Jonah, it's okay. And I love that. No, no long laundry list of rebuke, just, Jonah, you're all right, bud. Is this okay for you to do? And Jonah's going to walk away and he's going to think on this. And round two is going to happen. We're, we'll see it next week that God will begin to unearth Jonah's heart and God will begin to show him more and more of here's my heart compared to yours, Jonah, and you're not on the same page as me and you need to change. And I hope that we can look at this and we can learn from a man, that we can see ourselves, we can pick up the log and say, I'm squiggly and yucky too. I say, God, change me. God, help me. And I want my heart to be what yours is.